Welcome to the Decent People Podcast, a production of Decentral Media, where we're committed to telling the stories of the founders, builders, and visionaries who are creating a new decentralized economy and internet experience. You guys know it as Web3 or blockchain, but we're going to bring you the smartest and most interesting people in the space for intimate conversations that reveal their background, how they got into crypto in the first place, and what they're doing today to make a decentralized future a reality. Thanks so much for joining us, and check out our site at Decentral.io. Now, to the show. Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of the Decent People podcast. I'm your host, Matt Lysing, and today we're joined by Tim Bako, who is, uh, leads the all-core devs team for the Ethereum Foundation. What that is, is a group of uh, computer programmers who maintain the Ethereum mainnet and are working on uh, the current upgrade that's in progress, uh, known colloquially as ETH 2.0. Um, and, and we're talking about the merge, which is going to happen here in a couple uh, weeks, hopefully. Tim, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Uh, to give uh, listeners just sort of an update from um, the the guy who's running the show uh, for for Ethereum on how things are going. Um, so I thought what we could do, Tim, is just to kind of lay the groundwork here to to start at the beginning with you know what is proof of work, and then kind of work onto what is proof of stake. Why are we? Why is Ethereum doing this? And so. Um, maybe you could just kind of briefly tell listeners what uh, proof of work is and why it was so important uh, to blockchain or excuse me to Bitcoin uh, in the first place. Right, right. Um, so the the challenge or like the, the question that proof of work kind of solves is if you have a blockchain, um, who gets to create the next block in the blockchain? Right, like who who kind of uh, has the right to append the chain, and um, how do we make sure that, uh, especially in Bitcoin and Ethereum's case, this is not like a, a whitelist of somehow? Because we know how to do that, you know, from a from a computer science perspective, uh, you could just say, you know, these are the the entities that that can add a block to the chain, um, and this is what you know a lot of enterprise private networks do. Um, and then the challenge is you obviously need to know who those entities are and you need some central third party to uh, to agree to them. Um, so in proof of work, instead what you do is you basically make it a lottery that's based on how much work or computation uh, every actor does. And uh, in practice, what this looks like is um, there's a rule in the Bitcoin and Ethereum blockchain that says you can only have a valid block uh, that that, that builds on the next chain, um, if obviously it's valid and meets all the rules of the protocols, but also if you run a mathematical uh, function and the result is, is uh, smaller than this value or greater than this value, I forget if it's smaller or greater. And um, basically the, the, what you do is you run a hash function, uh, which takes a bunch of input data, applies some computation on it and, um, and, and, and creates an output, which is, it's impossible to go from the output to the input data, um, but if you have the input data, you can quick, you can very cheaply verify that you it, it matches the correct input. 
And so because of this property where it's very easy to verify, but it's, it's very hard uh, if you don't have the right input data to, to create this hash, um, what, what miners do on, on Bitcoin and Ethereum is they take all of like the transactions in a block and then they, they literally add a random number to it and then they check, does this satisfy the equation? And then it doesn't, and then they check again and they do this you know, billions or trillions of time. Um, and then at some point they do find something that, that satisfies the, the proof of work equation. Um, and then everybody else on the network can then verify that their solution is valid really cheaply. And that's kind of the ingenious part where it's really hard to create this uh, the, the solution, but then once you have it, um, once you have it, everybody else can verify. And then the last kind of interesting property is it's very easy to make this, this mathematical problem harder or easier based on how many people mine on the network. And so this is what, again, both Bitcoin and Ethereum do. So Bitcoin has this rule that says if blocks are coming quicker than 10 minutes, uh, make the problem harder so that it kind of slows down uh, the network back to 10 minutes. And Ethereum has the same rule that says if it's, uh, if it's you know, not at 13 seconds, either make it harder or easier so that we get back to this 13 seconds. Um, yeah, yeah it, it's fascinating. It's really, I think, the major breakthrough that Satoshi Nakamoto came up with was this proof of work. Um, idea. And like you said, he also wanted it, wanted Bitcoin to be decentralized. Um, if you have a whitelist, obviously there's got to be somebody who's a central authority who's maintaining that whitelist. But here, anybody with, you know, the right computer equipment can connect to the network and start um, competing to be, you know, mining the next block. The other thing I love is um, just to break it down a little bit, the hash function um, for listeners is basically you're looking for a certain output um, where you, I think it's a, the number of leading zeros in the yes. output. And, and what you do is there's a hash function and you just start with a random string of characters and put that through the hash function. And you have to, basically it's trial and error and you have to change that input hash, um, that input string, like one character at a time until you find like, okay, now the output hash has a leading zero, but you need something like 32 leading zeros to get the, to solve the proof of work equation. So it's really just this trial and error process that is, is why I think, I think it helps people to understand that this is why it takes so much computing power and so much energy and so much um, just, you know, fossil fuel kind of use, because it's really just, honestly, just you, you have to try and, and fail until you get the right input hash that gives you the right output. Um, so let's talk right. a little and bit about that, Tim. Like that, that's, a, that's one of the main, um, I think, criticisms of proof of work. While it's very secure uh, and has you know, been tested over time, it does demand a lot of energy and, and a lot of um, you know, fossil fuels being burned to, to provide that energy. Right. So it is, you know, it, it, it literally in the name, you know, proof of work, it is kind of converting raw energy into security for the network. And, it, and so that means there's basically two reasons why it, it, it takes so much energy. Um, the first is uh, because you need the, the network's issuance to pay not only like you need the network's issuance, sorry, to compensate the miners for the cost of their equipment, right? Because otherwise, if, if it was not profitable for anybody in the world to mine, uh, they wouldn't and the network wouldn't be secure. So you you need to kind of, uh, you know, issue enough, uh, issue enough like a new currency to, 
to, to compensate for that. And, and obviously, because people are paid uh, from the network for that, it creates an incentive for them to, to, to add mining equipment. And, yeah, and we then, should say right here that the winning miner in, in either Ethereum or Bitcoin's case gets uh, an, an amount of free Bitcoin or Ether. So that's what makes yeah. it worth their while. Yes, right. And, and nobody else does, right? This is kind of the, the interesting point, too, is that, you know, the person who creates a block gets the block reward. And then it's, it's, it's literally like a, a lottery. It's like the lottery restarts from scratch at, at, at the next block. Um, and so that's, you know, that's one of the big reasons. It's just like, you know, the network needs to pay for that. It creates an incentive for it. Um, and then the other reason why it, it creates so much, uh, it, it uses so much energy is that we want to limit the throughput of these networks um, on both Bitcoin and Ethereum in order for them to remain decentralized. And the, I guess the, the reasoning there is that if, you know, if we had blocks on Bitcoin, say, come every you know minute instead of ten minutes, then the amount of chain on the amount of data on the chain would grow ten times as quickly. And Ethereum is basically the same thing. You know, it's thirteen seconds now, but if it was you know if it was one second instead of thirteen seconds, we would grow you know roughly ten times as quickly. And when you grow the amount of data that every node on the network needs to store, um, obviously it, it means that the the people on the network who run a node who are not compensated for it uh, need like better and better hardware to, to maintain their node. Um, and so there's there's this philosophy in, in Bitcoin and Ethereum where um, we want to make sure that like the cost to run a node is still kind of accessible uh, on, you know, call it consumer hardware. Um, and, 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 you know, you can kind of increase the throughput of these networks uh, because computers get better over time. So there is like some rate of increase we get for free, but um, it's, it's like a very linear thing. Um, and so that means that, yeah, we have to throttle these networks. Um, so then when more people want to mine the network, we need to basically make it harder for them in order to keep this throttle on. Um, and, and so that means it's, it's kind of a weird thing to understand, but it's like the more energy mine, like mines Bitcoin, it is not, it makes the network more secure in that, you know, you need to expend that much energy to revert transactions. But there's a point where like, it, it does not like contribute to at, at the very least the average user's security, you know, much more. There's definitely diminishing returns. Um, so it's kind of like this thing that it's it's like this, you know, this this thing that has infinite appetite for computing power and it'll just you know absorb as much as it can get. Um and 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 there's no, you know, there's no way in which like if you add more computers, it, it sort of becomes more efficient or anything like that. You 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 don't get any like economies of scales, and so you you, you end up where like, you know, you, you do consume more and more energy. Yeah. yeah. It's a tricky balance though, right? Because the, the, the ethos of it is that you want anybody in their house to be able to run a node or to try to mine, right. you know, on the network so that it's as decentralized as possible. Yet, as we've seen over time, you know, server farms grow up where there's just, you know, like you've got miners that are running thousands of CPUs or GPUs. And so, it's, yeah, it's a tricky balance, I think, just to to try to um, keep that. But one thing, yeah, one thing I'll <laughs> add to that is you you obviously want ideally mining and validation to be accessible, you know, broadly. And and in practice, it's you know, there's a lot of challenges there. But there's still a lot of value in having non-mining nodes on the network. And I think this is something that like basically every other blockchain than Bitcoin and Ethereum and maybe a handful of exceptions get wrong is that. If the only nodes you have on the network are the miners or the validators, they can agree to collude and say, you know, print themselves, you know, a trillion ether, um, and 
no, there's no one who's gonna like be able to to watch that, right? Because they literally run the only nodes. At the very least, they won't be able to like stop it at the at the network level. Whereas on Ethereum or Bitcoin, even if you know, say a single entity controlled all of the, the mining power on, on either, if they actually yeah, as long as you have like more than one. But what happens is, you know, imagine the, the miners they, they decide to print themselves a trillion ether. That transaction and that block gets gossiped over the entire Ethereum network. And all of the listening nodes will then choose to reject that block because they'll say they still, even though they don't create a new block, they still validate that the block that was created meets all the protocol rules. And so a block which like prints a trillion ether um, would get rejected by all the network. And so there's no way for like, you know, uh, kind of malicious miners or val validators to spread their bad blocks over the networks. Um, and so it's almost like these, these like listening nodes, they kind of act as antibodies for the network. And so it's very important to keep them and to, yeah. and to keep kind of the resource requirements for them low, because um, otherwise you, it becomes much easier for just the validator set to collude because they basically don't have to share their blocks with anybody. And, and by the time people realize the chain might have progressed so much that it becomes un, you know, undoable to- uh, yeah. Yeah, to, that's a fascinating point. Set. I hadn't thought about it that way. Um, it's also interesting just um, on the security front that um, <clears throat> what you, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, to, to reverse transactions on the network, <clears throat> excuse me, it's this 51% problem, right? And, and with, with um, mature networks like Bitcoin or Ethereum, what that means is to, if you wanted to reverse some historical transactions, say pay yourself a trillion Ether, you would have to maintain 51% of the computing power on that network and then somehow try to re-engineer or, or re, um, revalidate the, that node that you, or that block that you wanted to change while at the same time keeping the network going um, so that right, nobody so there, noticed. And it's like a super, very, very difficult thing to do. Yeah, so there's, 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 there's a nuance that's also worth highlighting there where um, even on Bitcoin and Ethereum, if you control 51% of the stake, you cannot, or, or, or the mining power, you cannot create an invalid block. And so what that means is you can't, if you didn't already have like a trillion ether, which nobody has, you can't mint it into existence, uh, even if you control the majority of the hash rate. And this is because we have all these other listening nodes on the network, which will kind of block you. What you can do though, there's two things you can do if you control the majority of the mining power to stake. One is you can censor people. Uh, which, which, which is bad. So if you know you control 51% of the chain and say, imagine you're China, you control 51% of the, the mining power and you wanna censor transactions from Taiwan or some other country, you could just decide to you know, not include any transactions from the blocks from, from a list of addresses. And if a block that you, you see has those, uh, has those transactions in, you decide to not mine on top of it, you mine on top of the previous block and as long as you have 51% or more, probabilistically over time, your chain is gonna become the heaviest. So those transactions are gonna be excluded. So that's one thing that's, that's bad is you can just, you know, gate people out of the network and that's something we want to avoid. The other thing you can do if you have uh, the, the majority of the hash rate is you can do what's called like a double spend uh, attack where if you already own, own coins, you say you send them to an exchange, they, you know, you sell them to, you know, you sell them for USDC, whatever you cash out on, on some other chain. And then you can reveal another, another fork that you have that actually has more hash rate that becomes the valid chain 
in which you never sent those coins. Um, and so because obviously, you know, the, the payment was processed off chain, um, there's no recourse for, for uh, there's no in protocol recourse uh, for, for that transaction, but then you still get to keep your, your coins on the other side. Yeah. So you can like censor and you can double spend your coin, but yeah, on, at least on Bitcoin and Ethereum, uh, you can't like artificially create new coins on the network, even if you control the majority. And I think that's, yeah, that's an important point. That's, that's yeah, yeah, cool. Thank guess. you for the clarification. Yeah. Um, let's let's move on to proof of stake and <clears throat> what it is and, and why um, it's, for people who don't know, it's basically been in the roadmap of Ethereum from the beginning. It just, that it wasn't ready to, do, you know, I think Vitalik and the co-founders knew they had to start with proof of work with the idea that they would, um, as soon as possible, start doing this transition that's underway now to proof of stake. Right. Yeah. And I think, so, you know, we, we mentioned, there's a few problems with proof of work, right? Like one is obviously the environmental impact. Um, I'm not sure how much this was actually a concern when like Ethereum started, just, I don't know if people knew it would get so big and I'd be curious to dig into that. Um, but today that's definitely like a major concern and, and like one of the, the motivations for, for moving away. Um, I think there's also the idea that like, um, there are some, there is some misalignment between miners and like the rest of the community um, where, you know, they get paid to do a job, they sell their coins, um, but they're sometimes not necessarily aligned with the long-term health of the, of the network. Um, and they, you know, they, they are aligned to, to an extent where like, you know, they do have this equipment and like, they, you know, in the short term, I, I think they are, um, but yeah, it's, it's unclear whether you get like really good alignment with, with, with miners long-term. Um, and then the last thing that you, that you have with, with mining is that if you're not the most uh, kind of, if you're not using the most hardware in your category of, of mining uh, algorithm, um, you, you're always kind of at risk of somebody showing up with more computers and taking over your chain. Um, and even in the case where like you are, like Bitcoin and Ethereum both are pretty secure. So Bitcoin uses ASICs, Ethereum uses GPUs, um, and they both use kind of you know the most um, the most uh, ASICs and GPUs for mining in, in the world. Um, the, the kind of total amount uh, of like computers that we use is not huge relative to the amount of available computers in the world. Um, and so proof of stake gives you a, a couple a couple of things that, that that help you with these problems. So like the first is um, because so I, is it worth maybe explaining how proof of stake works? Yeah, let's just quickly yeah, go yeah, over that. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. So so proof of stake uh, basically works where instead of asking people to spend money on electricity and computers to mine coins on the network um, and then reward them when they do the same, the right thing. And if they do the wrong thing, they just don't get rewarded, but they spent all this electricity. So they have like a, a loss there. Um, on proof of stake, instead we say, well, we'll, we'll have some lottery mechanism which chooses the next person who produces a block. And if they do the right thing, we'll give them a bit of money, kind of like uh, interest on their stake. Um, and if they do the wrong thing, we'll take away money from them. So they put up like a bond or, or a stake as, as collateral, and then they, they propose a block. Um, and then other validators on the network will say whether this block was valid or not. If it's valid and like some thresholds of validators agree that it's valid, then they get rewarded. And then if somebody can prove that it's invalid for whatever reason, they, they lose part of the money. And then Ethereum would call that getting slashed. Um, and so high level, that's how it works. Um, Ethereum has always wanted to move to this, um, but the, 
we also always wanted to make sure that we kept this idea of like decentralization uh, in the network. And I think this is what basically, you know, took us so long. So if you, if you just look at like, I don't know, CoinGecko today, you can see there's a bunch of other proof of stake chains and you're like, well, why is Ethereum, you know, not on proof of stake yet? And, and I think uh, the reason is generally that like most proof of stake systems use a very small number of validators on the order of, you know, tens to like maybe thousands. Um, whereas on Ethereum, we wanted to make sure that it, it was possible for people with a lower stake to still become like a first class validator. So a lot of these, these protocols, other proof of stake protocols will let you delegate your stake to another validator, which is kind of the equivalent of a mining pool where you know the, 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 the delegation is kind of an interface between you and the validator and the validator is the one who actually uh, produces a block. Um, but on Ethereum, you know, as, as long as you have 32 ether, um, you can kind of become a first class validator on the network. And it, it just took us a couple of years to get there. And for people who might not know, you know, the original design required 1500 ether, which at the time was not a lot of money. And today would obviously be a huge amount of money. And um, so, you know, just through a bunch of like R and D work, we, we managed to get to a design, which we were now very confident in, but that, you know, not only is safe and, 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 and can secure the network, but is also accessible, you know, to a larger amount of, 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 of users. Yeah. Um, and obviously 32 ETH is, is not trivial. Like it's, it's still, you know, hundred-ish thousand dollars at, at today's prices. Um, but it is, it is much better than, than 1500. And, and I think it is something that hopefully in the next, you know, in the next few years, um, we, we can continue to keep to keep pushing down to make sure that, you know, it is, it is possible for end users to run a, a validator. Yeah. And one of the um, big, benefits of proof of stake is that the energy use um, of the network is slashed by upward of 95%. Yeah. I've seen other right. stories, 99%. Like it's just, you're it's basically trivial, just right? running a cloud-based company kind of like, you know, through Amazon servers, like anybody else. Right, exactly. And, and the reason for that is basically in proof of work, you need to expand all this energy, basically as an individual miner to get more weight in like the lottery, right? Like the more your share of hash rate is relative to others, the, the higher the chances you produce a block. So there's like this, this incentive to keep spending more and more energy and building more and more kind of computers. Um, whereas in proof of stake, we simply ask people to put up like money, um, which is ether in this case. And so they don't need to spend any, any energy in, in the real world beyond like the trivial cost of like running your server, um, which you know is is, is negligible. Um, and so yeah, we, we drop the the energy by you know at the very least ninety five. I think ninety five is like an extremely conservative number, and like some numbers are like yeah upwards of like ninety nine or ninety nine point five or like yeah. even ninety nine point nine. And hopefully they'll be better in the in the in you know better studies in the couple, next couple of years as as we move along. But like. Yeah, the, the energy use becomes trivial. Yeah. And um, this is something I'm not sure about, but is is just going to proof of stake something that would increase the transactions per second? Or is that something where you then we need to talk about sharding and right. making the network um, more geographically centered to where you are in the world? Right. So uh, the short answer is no. Yeah, proof of stake does not give you more transactional capacity. And, and it's for the same reason where we... We're not, and this is also something people misunderstand. We're at peak capacity on the Ethereum network because we 
choose to throttle the network, right? Because we want to keep it accessible to run a node. Mm -hmm. We're not at like peak capacity because like we don't know how to make the network better. It's like we, we don't know how to increase the capacity and retain kind of the current decentralization properties of the network. Um, so when we move to proof of stake, we don't, uh, we don't do anything that would change kind of the effective capacity of the network. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and as you were alluding to, th this has been a years long project. Um, like Vlad Zamfir was involved in one sort of version. Vitalik had a different version. Yeah. Um, if I'm remembering correctly, neither of those sort of ended up being what, what we're working on, what's being worked on today. Um, but it is finally um, very close. And so right. wh why don't you give us the update there and, and, and talk about the test net um, and, the, and the beacon chain and then like where right. and when you think the merge will um, eventually take place. Right. So, um, the, yeah, so the, like you said, you know, proof of stake was always part of the roadmap and there were different, you know, research ideas for how the actual proof of stake algorithm would work. Um, and because, you know, yeah. Ethereum was obviously running on proof of work, um, we wanted to make sure that proof of stake worked as we thought it would before combining the two. Um, and so, you know, about probably two years ago now, uh, we were pretty set on a final design for proof of stake, um, and uh, which was actually, I'm pretty sure it was based on Vitalik. So there was Vitalik and Vlad's designs. It was what we ended up choosing was some iteration on, on Vitalik's design and uh, probably with a bunch of modifications. Um, but we, 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 we had that design kind of go live as a separate chain from Ethereum called the Beacon Chain, um, which uh, is basically just a proof of stake engine where we run this entire process of having people be randomly selected, voting on blocks, voting on each other's blocks. And we use real ether. So people deposit real ether into the beacon chain, but the blocks they produce don't have any end user transactions. They're basically, they're not empty blocks because they contain you know, information related to the consensus of the network, but they're empty from like the perspective of you know, sending transactions like somebody using MetaMask would, would do. Um, and so that went live in December, 2020. Um, and after about a, a year of it being live, um, we were pretty confident that, you know, it worked as intended, um, that it, it was safe. It was managing, you know, two digit billions of dollars at, at that time. Uh, I still is roughly in, in, in that order. Um, and so that gave us a lot of confidence that like, uh, yeah, that, that, that this was a secure consensus mechanism to move over. And, Originally, the, the plan was that once we were once we were confident in that, we would add what was called like shards to the proof of stake engine, um, which were basically kind of copies of the Ethereum chain, and and kind of ask people to migrate over and eventually shut down the proof of work chain. Um, and the the challenge with that uh, roadmap was like one, it was never quite clear how we would manage all these all these different shards running computation in parallel. Um, two, like the transition itself was was always kind of clunky. Like there was no, you know, great way to do it. And again, people might not know this, but like Ethereum has literally never gone down. So we can't, you know, we can't afford it. And, and the reason why is like all these smart contracts kind of assume, you know, that stuff happens and they, there's all these interdependencies and and they all reference things in the real world as well. So it's yeah. not like it's, it's like a closed system. So we need, we need Ethereum to stay up. My, so my, favorite, my favorite analogy for this is um, it's like you're repairing a 747 in mid-flight 
you know right yes. like you yes. have to yeah, keep yeah. flying the plane as, exactly. as yeah. well as like upgrading it in real time right and and we don't control it's not like if it was grounded like we don't control like the weather right like and we need to like there's things that are happening on ethereum and off ethereum and we need to make sure that you know things keep keep working according to to what's expected yeah. um so so yeah so this transition would have been clunky um it, it wasn't clear yet how we would run all these different like versions of ethereum in parallel um and so at Let, the let's same break time, that down just yeah. for a second so the yeah. sharding idea is like i said before you right now the network is global and you have to run everything uh right, uh, right. To, to to run the network like on a node you have yeah. to know everything that's happening everywhere which is yeah. a lot of data and if i'm if i'm correct here correct me if i'm wrong but sharding it's more geographic so you know like if i'm in the western united states i might not need to know like all at all times everything that's going on in hong kong right so it's not it's not geographic, but it's like application based in a way where if you had application level sharding, what you could say is like imagine there's you know like I think sixty four was the last number. There's like sixty four Ethereum chains, but like there's maybe a version of Uniswap on like chain one and twelve, and then you know you have like ENS on another chain. And so if you're just looking at say like you know the shard twelve, uh, you you know you can only like just care about that one, and you okay. also want to get some cryptographic like proof that what's happening on the other chains is also right like even though even though you don't want to monitor everything you want to be sure that somebody's not like printing a trillion ether on shard you know 53 or something so you need some mechanism to make sure that you know you have a full view on what's happening like close to you but you also have some assurances that like things are happening as you would expect uh, elsewhere and and so that was kind of the, the general the, the the earlier vision um well, what we saw happen in parallel was basically the rise of rollups. Um, and so rollups are similar to sharding in that they're separate, you know, Ethereum chains, but rather than be um, part of the protocol themselves, they're built kind of like applications on Ethereum. And this is, this is like really uh, underselling rollups. Like they're much more complex than that, but just so please, you know, rollup teams don't, uh, yeah, don't come after me. About this, but like, just from a you know layman's perspective, is if if we had this application level sharding, the the client developers on the core Ethereum protocol basically need to manage all that complexity. Whereas with rollups, rollups can like build an application on Ethereum, which obviously meets all of the properties of like you know being uh, like all the rules of the Ethereum protocol. But then they can manage this complexity and build like different products. Um, and so we we started to see those happening in parallel to not really having great answers to like how we would deal with the complexities of sharding. And so that's kind of when the, the roadmap started shifting where we thought, well, instead of trying to like centrally plan all of this scaling, couldn't we just, you know, make Ethereum like a good base layer for all of these rollups to, to thrive on the network? Um, and, you know, we've seen over the, the, the last year or so, like there's been tons of rollups deployed, obviously uh, lots of optimistic rollups, lots of ZK rollups. And just the fact that you have like these two completely distinct categories, both building on Ethereum, I think shows that this was a better approach because like, you know, you allow different teams to explore different parts of like the design space and, you know, and, and over time we'll see which is best, but like, or, or if they both live, live side by side, but like we kind of got this innovation that I don't think we would have had if we just like restricted it to the to the protocol researchers. Um, yeah. yeah. So that's yeah, that's how we're 
we're thinking about about scaling generally right now. Yeah. Okay. And um, so you guys have been running these test nets um, yeah. for, for several months. Um, it yeah. seems like things are going well. And yeah. um, are we in a time period of May, June to do the merge? Right. So, okay. So yeah, just to, yeah, to get back to the merge. So, you know, we, we have, we have the current proof of work chain. Now we have the beacon chain that's running in parallel or scaling using the rollups, but yes, we still have this proof of stake chain uh, that's like separate from Ethereum today. And we'd like to bring it in to, to merge it with Ethereum. And what we, what we mean by the merge, just to, to make sure you, you, your listeners kind of understand is we're going to combine both chains and stop relying on proof of work to tell us, you know, who produces the next block, but instead kind of fill the blocks on the beacon chain with uh, the kind of transactional content that we see on Ethereum today. So what the system will look like, you know, after the merge is you have the beacon chain, which chooses a validator to produce the next block. That validator then bundles a bunch of transactions and creates the block. Uh, and, 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 you know, that's how Ethereum runs. And then those transactions can be aggregated transactions from rollups, which kind of provide scalability. Yeah, so the insight we had, uh, which kind of changed, you know, our, our roadmap ar around the merge was that uh, today on Ethereum, the nodes can already use different consensus algorithms than proof of work. Uh, so obviously on mainnet, that's what we use, but on a lot of the test nets, we use uh, what's basically called proof of authority, where we just whitelist specific people to, to create blocks, um, and, and private networks use this too. And so uh, we, we basically, decided that instead of trying to like either really combine the both networks or migrate or something like that, we could, you know, from the point of the merge, have the current Ethereum clients simply decide to switch to proof of stake as their consensus algorithm. Um, and what this mean, meant in practice is that we could reuse all of the infrastructure that we already had. So all of like, obviously the Ethereum clients like Aragon, Geth and, and Ethermine that exist today that run the network, uh, would would be reused, but also like everybody that's built infrastructure around that, um, things would kind of work seamlessly. And by also just like moving from this world where we transition all the applications over to one where we just switch the, the mechanism by which we decide who creates the next block, um, we can kind of ensure there's no downtime because how, how it works in practice is we just say, once we've reached this proof of work block, then we expect the next block to be created by proof of stake. So from a like smart contract perspective, there's, there's literally zero downtime where one block was just created by proof of work. The next one is proof of stake. And then the one after that is proof of stake. Right. Um, yeah, it's, it's obviously not a simple process, but this is a simple approach to switch. Right. It is like a simpler design. And obviously, you know, the devil's in the details and it took us like almost a year now to, to go from like, having that design implemented to having something we, we think is, 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 is robust. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, so May of last year, we, we weren't sure this was actually going to work, but we, we kind of had a hackathon where we, we got all the client teams together for a month and, and tried to prototype it and, um, and it did work. So we were, we were confident in the design, but we knew there would be a ton of issues around it. Um, and so we, we spent like the summer kind of going over these issues, trying to fix things up. And then in the fall, we all met together in person again. Um, and what we had done in May was basically show that the final state would work where you had, you know, like our current, all our current infrastructure, but um, uh, running on proof of stake. And so in, in uh, October, we all got together and we tried to make sure that we could actually run through this transition process, like start on proof of work, make this migration happen and like 
uh, finalize on the other side and, and, and have everything run smoothly. So we, we locked everybody out. We locked everybody together for a week. Uh, and and, and we, we managed to get, again, like a prototype of that working, um, which I think at that point got us really confident that like, you know, there, there was no like major issues with this. Like sure, there would be bugs and whatnot, but we knew that like, the final design was sound, the transition approach was sound, um, and we just kind of needed to, to, to solidify it. Um, so from like October to December, that's what we did. Uh, and in December, we had what we, what we thought was like a, a pretty good design. Like we, I don't think any of us thought it was it was final, like we still expected bugs. Um, but I think we had something that like, you know, we, we thought would generally work. So we launched a, a, a new test net called Kintsugi over the holidays and um, basically started testing things on the testnet, like deploying a bunch of smart contracts, uh, spamming the testnet with transaction um, and, and whatnot. And we found a couple bugs on it, um, which was which was obviously very valuable, but again, nothing that like um, made us reconsider the, the overall design. It was like some edge cases that we hadn't considered um, and whatnot. So we then we, we fixed all of those and literally today, uh, March 14th for the people listening later, uh, we launched an, another testnet uh, called Kiln, and we expect this one to be basically free of major bugs. You know, we expect we'll probably find a couple minor issues, um, but generally, we think we've gotten like all the major edge cases. We think the the not only is the design sound, but the implementations are pretty are pretty good at that point. Um, you know, not like 100% done, but you know, most of the way there. And and our goal is to to get uh, a bunch more community usage on this. Uh, because I think we're we're pretty confident in like our testing of it so far, uh, but we want to make sure that like even if nothing breaks at the protocol level, there's not like some weird you know tooling suites that break that people depend on, um, or that I don't know say like folks like exchanges you know when they're parsing deposits, we want to make sure that obviously still works as they expect it. Yeah. So this is kind of what we're we're looking for now. Like obviously, if we find some bugs at, at the protocol layer, this is the time to find them. But we think. The odds of a major bug there are quite low, and it's it's more likely we find like some integration issues across the stack. Um, You've certainly answered this, but I wanted to ask how confident you are that there isn't going to be some unexpected problem, and, and, and Ethereum goes down for the first time. Is that like right. how? Uh, what probability would you give to that kind of scenario? It's hard because it's like an unknown unknown, right? Like I think, I think we. <laughs> we're pretty confident that the transition works, right? Like, and, and we're also we're also testing it in, in scenarios that are a bit worse than mainnet because on mainnet, there's like real money at stake. So if you're like the first validator to be chosen after the merge and you don't produce a block, it's like you, you lose that money, right? And, and, and whereas on all of our test networks, like it's not the case because it's not real money. So I think, you know, it, it's always possible, but I think at this point, it's like, it's really an unknown unknown. Um, yeah. I'm, yeah, I, I, but I, I think- if the, other, the other issue that you sort of alluded to was just making sure that everybody's aware of this and that they've tested it out and that they're gonna right. be there on yeah. the day when it switches so that they, you know, don't get caught uh, off guard. Right, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that, that's really important. And, and I think, you know, there's still there's still like risks of bugs and we do a, we have a ton of different parallel testing efforts to, to catch them obviously you can never be 100 percent sure of these things like it you know it, it, it might happen we we just hope the probability is really low i think at this point it's almost like our our main focus is like 
not quite user experience yet, but like probably the in-between space where it's like, you know, basically, yeah, developer experience. Like, I think we're at the point where we're trying to think like, okay, we're, we're confident that this, this works as, as we expect. Um, there might still be issues, but, you know, we're, we're trying hard to find those. Assuming it works like we expect, does it work with everything else that's built around Ethereum? You know, does it work with Infura? Does it work with, uh, with and Infura and MetaMask are like the easy cases to test. But like, I think things around like, you know, if, if, if you're say Uniswap and you have like an automated deployment tool that like updates your front end when you change your smart contracts and whatnot, like does all this stuff kind of work? Uh, yeah. If you're using like a library to, to create transactions, like does, does it work? And so it's, it's like all these interactions, like, you know, does Etherscan, you know, work, you know, to support every balance of every, every operation that's happening? It's kind of like when you lose your credit card, you know, and you have to get a new number and like, you know where to go to change most of it, but then there's these things that you've forgotten about, you <laughs> yeah, know, and yeah. then they just suddenly stop working because the, yeah. the card is no good. Yeah, yeah. And so, and so yeah, so I think we're, we're at that spot now. And, you know, assuming that like thing, again, we don't find a major issue and that like things keep, keep progressing nicely. I think in probably like the next weeks to like month or so, we'll, we'll, we'll be starting to look at, okay, can we, uh, can we start forking the existing test nets? So Ethereum, we, we created these two new test nets, but there's like a, a bunch of long-standing test nets that application developers use as, as basically staging environments. And so we, we always like want to run those through any upgrade before to make sure that things work uh, again on, on those networks. And those networks also have pretty high usage. Like they have higher usage than a lot of like real blockchains. Is that like Robstan? Is that one of them? Yeah, Robstan, Gordy, Rinkaby. Yeah. Um, so yeah. so the, they're, they're, they're useful because they give us a lot of data when we fork them. But, you know, we also want to wait until we're, we're really confident because like people rely on them. So it's, it's not the end of the world if we break them, but it's, it's also not, not great. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and so then, you know, we'll, again, assuming that things, that things uh, go well in, in the next month, then we'll, we'll have a timeline to, to, to upgrade all of these. And I think it usually takes us, you know, roughly call it six weeks or so to, to run through all these upgrades. Um, and I think, again, assuming all those go smoothly, then we'll be looking at, at, at a time to, to upgrade on mainnet. Um, and so we haven't, you know, we don't have a date yet. Um, I think it's always hard to like predict this stuff. Uh, we do have uh, the difficulty bomb that's happening on mainnet. So difficulty bomb is like a, a mechanism that slows down blocks over time if there's no upgrades on Ethereum. It's going to kick in sometime in like June, early July-ish. Um, so I think in an ideal world, that would be a, a great time for the upgrade to happen. But like, it's it's hard to put that as a prediction because it's, it's really like a sequence of things that has to happen. Um, if we find a major issue, we'll obviously push it back. We'll push back the difficulty bomb because the the main thing we're, we're we're focused on is making sure that this happens security and smoothly. Yeah, of course, and, of course. And, and you know, and also are, just, I mean, this is the most complicated and far-reaching change to Ethereum since it launched in 2015. Oh yes, yes, yeah, yeah, no yeah, doubt by, about by it. Far. I mean, this is this is huge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, like, yeah, there is not really a close second. Like 1559 was a big change, but it was a fraction of this. And so, yeah, we. I think everybody working on this obviously wants to see it live. People have been working on it for. Well, yeah, I was going to ask years. you what's what's that like? Like you're you're leading this group that's um, you know doing all of this hard work. Like, what's the mood like among I, the people you were working with and in, in, in the core devs? Like, are people excited? Are they exhausted? Are they like? A, a, a... I think no. Everybody's really excited. Like, I think um, I think there's two things, right? Like, so I've 
I work on like the, the, the proof of work side of Ethereum now. So I'm, I'm, I'm fairly new to this, relatively speaking, compared to the people who've been working on proof of stake for like four or five years, right? Um, so I think the proof of stake people are like incredibly excited that like, you know, this thing- It's finally almost here. <laughs> right, exactly. And it, like, obviously proof of stake is live, but I think people mentally see, you know, you see the finish line as like having both systems combined together and we got rid of proof of work. So I think there's like huge excitement there. And I think on the, on the proof of work side, um, there's, there's a lot of excitement, but it's also like we, like we were very like heads down and focused on, on, on our stuff. And I think for like a, a lot of time, you know, proof of stake felt like it, it was more in a research stage. And so, it was really like in May of last year when I think it clicked for people that like, okay, this thing, like it's finally ready for us to use it. It's like, you know, like the research was already done because the proof of stake thing was live, but it was like, not only is it live, it's been tested, it's been like battle tested and it's like something we can use. And, and I think there's been like really, really good excitements since then. And it's, you know, it's almost been a year, but like, yeah, to, to be able to just like use this really new, interesting like piece of, of Ethereum that like we, we didn't have access to before. Um, so yeah, I, I think, yeah, do people are- it, um, Do you see it fundamentally changing how people build applications on top of Ethereum or is this just um, sort of like the, the pipes are gonna be different or is it is it hard to right. say? Yeah, yeah. so if, if, if what you mean by applications is smart contracts, it changes like basically nothing. And that was like by design. And th there's two reasons. Like one is we have all these smart contracts already and we have to make sure they they keep working. So it's like, you can't change too much or, or, yeah. or your current yeah, yeah. ones will stop. Um, I guess I was thinking more like, you know, like where NFTs kind of came from, or, you know, there's always these new things that are happening. Right. So um, I think, yeah, I think we don't change a lot there. It, it changes a lot for like infrastructure providers. So if you're like, I don't know, Infura or Etherscan or like Coinbase or like those people need to do a bit more work because like the, they, they're not usually building on the network, but they're like building tooling that like, plugs into the network. And so that requires a bit more work, but for people just developing like NFTs or DeFi or, or, or things like that, uh, nothing should change. Um, the one thing that, you know, there's like a few nice small changes, like the block times on proof of work come at like a random time. Like they're on average 13 seconds, but they're like not always. Um, on proof of stake, they're like every 12 seconds. So it's like, you get this nice regularity, you know, you get, you get like small things like that, but mm -hmm. the, high level, like nothing really changes. Yeah. All right. Well, Tim, this has been fascinating. Thank you for the update and for all the great background information and, and for explaining how all of this fits together. Good luck. Uh, we'll, let's be in touch. Uh, I'd love to talk to you, um, you know, after you can pop some champagne and, <laughs> and celebrate um, the merge actually being real. Yeah. Thank you so much. This was, this was great. And yeah, looking forward to, to the merge being live. Yeah. All right. Take care, Tim. Thanks. That's it for this episode of Decent People. Thanks so much for listening. Check the show notes for more information on our guests today. And make sure to look us up on the web at decentral.io. That's D-E-C-E-N-T-I-A-L.io. And on Twitter at Decentral. Have a great day. <laughs>